You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more, including all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can find a link there to send me a message and also some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece written by Courtney Lindwall. This is published at nrdc.org. Spare yourself the guilt trip this Earth Day. It's companies that need to clean up their acts. Coined in the late 1970s, the classic Earth Day mantra, reduce, reuse, recycle, has encouraged consumers to take stock of the materials they buy, use, and often quickly pitch, all in the name of curbing pollution and saving the Earth's resources. Most of us listened, or Lord knows we tried. We've carried totes and refused straws and dutifully rinsed yogurt cartons before placing them in the appropriately marked bins. And yet, nearly half a century later, the United States still produces more than 35 million tons of plastic annually and sends more and more of it into our oceans, lakes, soils, and bodies. Clearly, something isn't working, but as a consumer, I'm sick of the weight of those millions of tons of trash falling squarely on the consumer's shoulders. While I continue to do my part, it's high time that the companies profiting from all this waste also step up and help us deal with their ever-growing footprint on our planet. An investigation last year by NPR and PBS confirmed that polluting industries have long relied on recycling as greenwashing scapegoats. If the public came to view recycling as a panacea for sky-high plastic consumption, manufacturers, as well as the oil and gas companies that sell the raw materials that make up plastics, bet they could continue deluging the market with their products. There are currently no laws that require manufacturers to help pay for expensive recycling programs or make the process easier. But a promising trend is emerging. Earlier this year, New York legislators Todd Kaminsky and Stephen Engelbright proposed a bill, the Extended Producer Responsibility Act, that would make manufacturers in the state responsible for the disposal of their products. Other laws exist in some states for hazardous wastes, such as electronics, car batteries, paint, and pesticide containers. Paint manufacturers in nearly a dozen states, for example, must manage easy-access recycling drop-off sites for leftover paint. Those laws have so far kept more than 16 million gallons of paint from contaminating the environment. But for the first time, manufacturers could soon be on the hook for much broader categories of trash, including everyday paper, metal, 
glass, and plastic packaging, by paying fees to the municipalities that run the waste management systems. In addition to New York, the states of California, Washington, and Colorado also currently have such bills in the works. Quote, The New York bill would be a foundation on which a modern, more sustainable waste management system could be built, says NRDC waste expert Eric Goldstein. In New York City alone, the proposed legislation would cover an estimated 50% of the municipal waste stream. Importantly, it would funnel millions of dollars into the state's beleaguered recycling programs. This would free up funds to hire more workers and modernize sorting equipment, while also allowing cities to reallocate the previous recycling budgets towards other important services, such as education, public parks, and mass transit. The bills aren't about playing the blame game. They are necessary. Unsurprisingly, Americans still produce far more trash than anyone else in the world, clocking in at an average of nearly five pounds per person every day, clogging landfills and waterways, harming wildlife, contributing to the climate crisis, and blighting communities. As of now, a mere 8% of the plastic we buy gets recycled, and at least six times more of our plastic waste ends up in an incinerator then gets reused. It's easy to see why. Current recycling rules vary widely depending on where you live, and they're notoriously confusing. Contrary to what many of us have been told, proper recycling requires more than simply looking for that green arrow triangle, a label that may tell you what a product is made out of and that it is recyclable in theory, but not whether that material can be recycled in your town or anywhere at all. About 90% of all plastic can't be recycled, often because it's either logistically difficult to sort or there's no market for it to be sold. That recycling marketplace is also ever-changing. When China, which was importing about a third of our country's recyclable plastic, started refusing our usually contaminated waste streams in 2018, demand for recyclables tanked. This led to cities as big as Philadelphia and towns as small as Hancock, Maine, to send even their well-sorted recyclables to landfills. Municipalities now had to either foot big bills to pick up recyclables they once sold for a profit, or shutter recycling services altogether. According to Goldstein, New York's bill has a good shot of passing this spring, and it already has the support of some companies that see the writing on the wall, or as the New York Times puts it, the glimmer of a cultural reset, a shift in how Americans view corporate and individual responsibility. If the bill does go through, New Yorkers could start to see changes to both local recycling programs and product packaging within a few years. What makes these bills so groundbreaking isn't that they force manufacturers to pay for the messes they make, but that they could incentivize companies to make smarter, less wasteful choices in the first place. And I need to diverge a bit from the, the article here because that just begs the question for me to why not just legislate that? And maybe maybe part of that answer is that it's a much harder bill to pass to simply unequivocally state certain, certain um, product packaging is unlawful. 
You cannot do it. You cannot use it. You cannot produce single-use plastics. It's been done with plastic bags. It's been done in many areas with plastic straws. Why not say certain categories, entire categories of plastic food packaging are, are not, not legal anymore? Most single-use plastic beverage containers should just be outlawed, period. You cannot produce them. You cannot sell goods in them because the waste is too great. We have allowed forever companies to externalize the costs of doing business and to make it someone else's problem. Well, guess what? That's someone else's us. It's the environment. It's the, it's the landfill space. It's the toxins that get released in the manufacturing usage and decomposition of these, of these items. It's time to say for many of these items, no. And then for the rest, say what this bill is starting to say is you are 100% responsible for the reclamation and proper recycling of any packaging that your product is, is sold in. It should be much more explicit and much more firm than to this will hopefully encourage. Now, this is a great step, forcing them to pay for the proper disposal or recycling of the waste that they're selling to consumers is a positive step. It will have these residual impacts of them producing less of that packaging waste, but it's, it's only a small part of the real solution is to say, no, you can't produce packaging. You can't produce goods that are single-use and disposable and not bear the full 100% burden of reclaiming those and reusing them. Back to the piece. New York's bill, for instance, could help reward more sustainable product design. A company might pay less of a fee if it reduces the total amount of waste of a product, sources a higher percentage of recycled material, or makes the end product more easily recyclable by, say, using only one type of plastic instead of three. Quote, Producers are in the best position to be responsible because they control the types and amounts of packaging, plastics, and paper products that are put into the marketplace, Goldstein says. Bills like these embody the principles of a circular economy, that elusive North Star towards which all waste management policies should point. By encouraging companies to use more recycled materials, demand for recyclables goes up and the recycling industry itself is revitalized. What gets produced gets put back into the stream for reuse. If widely adopted, we could significantly reduce our overall consumption and burden on the planet. With less paper used, more forests would stay intact. To continue to store carbon, filter air and water, and provide habitat for wildlife and sustenance for communities, with less plastic produced, less trash would clog oceans and contaminate ecosystems and food supplies. In turn, would give fossil fuels even more reasons to stay in the ground where they belong. That would be my Earth Day dream come true. With little hand-wringing of fellow guilt-stricken individuals required.
Next up, here's a piece that was mentioned in that article. This is written by Laura Sullivan. This is the NPR and PBS, uh, or a piece based on the NPR and PBS study on plastic recycling. This is published at NPR.org. How Big Oil Misled the Public into Believing Plastic Would Be Recycled. Laura Liebrich, a manager at Rogue Disposal and Recycling in Southern Oregon, is standing on the end of its landfill watching an avalanche of plastic trash pour out of a semi-trailer. Containers, bags, packaging, strawberry containers, yogurt cups. None of this plastic will be turned into new plastic things. All of it is buried. To me, that felt like it was a betrayal of the public trust, she said. I had been lying to people, unwittingly. Rogue, like most recycling companies, had been sending plastic trash to China. But when China shut its doors two years ago, Liebrick scoured the U.S. for buyers. She could find only someone who wanted white milk jugs. She sends the soda bottles to the state. But when Liebrick tried to tell people the truth about burying all the other plastic, she says people didn't want to hear it. Quote, I remember the first meeting where I actually told a city council that it was costing more to recycle than it was to dispose of the same material as garbage, she says. And it was like heresy had been spoken in the room. You're lying. This is gold. We take the time to clean it, take the labels off, separate it, and put it here. It's gold. This is valuable. But it's not valuable. And it never has been. And what's more, the makers of plastic, the nation's largest oil and gas companies, have known this all along, even as they spent millions of dollars telling the American public the opposite. NPR and PBS Frontline spent months digging into internal industry documents and interviewing top former officials. We found that the industry sold the public on an idea it knew wouldn't work, that the majority of plastic could be, and would be, recycled. All while making billions of dollars selling the world new plastic. The industry's awareness that recycling wouldn't keep plastic out of landfills in the environment dates to the program's earliest days, we found. Quote, There is serious doubt that recycling plastic can ever be made viable on an economic basis, one industry insider wrote in a 1974 speech. Yet the industry spent millions telling people to recycle, because as one former top industry insider told NPR, selling recycling sold plastic, even if it wasn't true. Quote, If the public thinks that recycling is working, then they are not going to be as concerned about the environment. Larry Thomas, former president of the Society of the Plastics Industry, known today as the Plastics Industry Association, and one of the industry's most powerful trade groups in Washington, D.C., told NPR. In response, industry representative Steve Russell, until recently the vice president of plastics for the trade group, the American Chemistry Council, said the industry has never intentionally misled the public about recycling and is committed to ensuring all plastic is recycled. Quote, The proof is a dramatic amount of investment that is happening right now, Russell said. I do understand the skepticism, 
because it hasn't happened in the past. But I think the pressure, the public commitments, and most important, the availability of technology is going to give us a different outcome. Here's the basic problem. All used plastic can be turned into new things. But picking it up, sorting it out, and melting it down is expensive. Plastic also degrades each time it is reused, meaning it can't be reused more than once or twice. On the other hand, new plastic is cheap. It's made from oil and gas, and it's almost always less expensive and of better quality to just start fresh. All of these problems have existed for decades, no matter what new recycling technology or expensive machinery has been developed. In all that time, less than 10% of plastic has ever been recycled. But the public has known little about these difficulties. It could be because that's not what they were told. Starting in the 1990s, the public saw an increasing number of commercials and messaging about recycling plastic. Quote, the bottle may look empty, yet it's anything but trash, says one ad from 1990, showing a plastic bottle bouncing out of a garbage truck. It's full of potential. We've pioneered the country's largest, most comprehensive plastic recycling program to help plastic fill valuable uses and roles. These commercials carried a distinct message. Plastic is special, and the consumer should recycle it. It may have sounded like an environmentalist message, but the ads were paid for by the plastics industry, made up of companies like Exxon, Chevron, Dow, DuPont, and their lobbying and trade organizations in Washington. Industry companies spent tens of millions of dollars on these ads and ran them for years, promoting the benefits of a product that, for the most part, was buried, was burned, or in some cases, wound up in the ocean. Documents show industry officials knew this reality about recycling plastic as far back as the 1970s. Many of the industry's old documents are housed in libraries, such as the one on the grounds of the first DuPont family home in Delaware. Others are within universities, where former industry leaders sent their records. At Syracuse University, there are boxes of files from a former industry consultant, and inside one of them is a report written in April 1973 by scientists tasked with forecasting possible issues for top industry executives. Recycling plastic, it told the executives, was unlikely to happen on a broad scale. Quote, There is no recovery from obsolete products, it says. It says pointedly, plastic degrades with each turnover. Quote, a degradation of resin properties and performance occurs during the initial fabrication through aging and in any reclamation process, the report told executives. Recycling plastics is, quote, costly, it says, and sorting it, the report concludes, is, quote, infeasible. And there are more documents echoing decades of this knowledge, including one analysis from a top official at the industry's most powerful trade group. Quote, The costs of separating plastics are high, he tells colleagues, before noting that the cost of using oil to make plastic is so low that recycling plastic waste, quote, 
can't yet be justified economically. Larry Thomas, the former president of the Society of the Plastics Industry, worked side-by-side with top oil and plastics executives. He's retired now on the coast of Florida, where he likes to bike and feels conflicted about the time he worked with the plastics industry. Quote, I did what the industry wanted me to do, that's for sure, he says. But my personal views didn't always jibe with the views I had to take as part of my job. Thomas took over back in the late 1980s, and back then, plastic was in a crisis. There was too much plastic trash. The public was getting upset. In one document from 1989, Thomas calls executives at Exxon, Chevron, Amico, Dow, DuPont, Procter & Gamble, and others to a private meeting at the Ritz-Carlton in Washington. Quote, The image of plastics is deteriorating at an alarming rate, he wrote. We are approaching a point of no return. He told the executives they needed to act. The, quote, viability of the industry and the profitability of your company are at stake. Thomas remembers now. The feeling was the plastics industry was under fire. We got to, we got to do what it takes to take the heat off, because we want to continue to make plastic products, he says. At this time, Thomas had a co-worker named Lou Freeman. He was a vice president of the lobbying group. He remembers many of the meetings like this one in Washington. The basic question on the table was, you guys, as our trade association in the plastics industry, aren't doing enough. We need to do more, Freeman says. I remember this is one of those exchanges that sticks with me 35 years later or however long it's been, and it was what we need to do is advertise our way out of it. That was the idea thrown out. So began the plastics industry's $50 million a year ad campaign promoting the benefits of plastics. Quote, presenting the possibilities of plastic, one iconic ad blared, showing kids in bike helmets and plastic bags floating in the air. This advertising was motivated first and foremost by legislation and other initiatives that are being introduced in state legislatures, and sometimes in Congress, Freeman says, to ban or curb the use of plastics because of its performance in the waste stream. And so we get to the core of the issue. There were efforts to ban and prevent various types of plastic packaging in the past, and the industry rose up and fought and put their money on the line to make sure that those things failed. At the same time, the industry launched a number of feel-good projects telling the public to recycle plastic. It funded sorting machines, recycling centers, nonprofits, even expensive benches outside grocery stores made out of plastic bags. Few of these projects actually turned much plastic into new things. NPR tracked down almost a dozen projects the industry publicized starting in 1989. All of them shuttered or failed by the mid-1990s. Mobile's Massachusetts recycling facility lasted three years, for example. Amico's project to recycle plastic in New York schools lasted two. 
Dow and Huntsman's highly publicized plan to recycle plastic in national parks made it to seven out of 419 parks before the companies cut funding. It's just a massive PR game for them. And fuck the rest of us. None of them was able to get past the economics. Making new plastic out of oil is cheaper and easier than making plastic out of trash. Of course, because those costs are externalized as well. Producing the oil and gas and producing the chemicals and plastics from that oil and gas has billions of dollars worth of subsidies and billions of dollars worth of externalized costs. They don't pay the cost of cleanup in those industries either. Both Freeman and Thomas, the head of the lobbying group, says the executives all knew that. There was a lot of discussion about how difficult it was to recycle, Thomas remembers. They knew that the infrastructure wasn't there to really have recycling amount to a whole lot. Even as the ads played and the projects got underway, Thomas and Freeman say the industry officials wanted to get recycling plastic into people's homes and outside on their curbs with blue bins. The industry created a special group called the Council for Solid Waste Solutions and brought a man from DuPont, Ron Leismer, to run it. Leismer's job was to at least try to make recycling work, because there was some hope, he said, however unlikely, that maybe if they could get recycling started, somehow the economics of it all would work itself out. I had no staff, but I had money, Leismer says millions of dollars. Leismer took those millions out to Minnesota and other places to start local plastic recycling programs. But then he ran into the same problem that the industry's documents found. Recycling plastics wasn't making economic sense. There were too many different kinds of plastic, hundreds of them, and they can't be melted down together. They have to be sorted out. Yes, it can be done, Leismer says, but who's going to pay for it? Because it goes into too many applications. It goes into too many structures that would just not be practical to recycle. Leismer says he started as many programs as he could and hoped for the best. They were trying to keep their products on the shelves, Leismer says. That's what they were focused on. They weren't thinking, what lesson should we learn for the next 20 years? No solve today's problem. And Thomas, who led the trade group, says of all of these efforts started to have an effect. The message that plastics could be recycled was sinking in. Quote, I can only say that after a while the atmosphere seemed to change, he says. I don't know whether it was because people thought recycling had solved the problem or whether they were so in love with plastic products that they were willing to overlook the environmental concerns that were mounting up. But as the industry pushed those public strategies to get past the crisis, officials were also quietly launching a broader plan. In the early 1990s, at a small recycling facility near San Diego, a man named Coy Smith was one of the first to see the industry's new initiative. Back then, Smith ran a recycling business. His customers were watching the ads and wanted to recycle plastic. 
So Smith allowed people to put two plastic items in their bins, soda bottles and milk jugs. He lost money on them, he says, but the aluminum paper and steel from his regular business helped offset the costs. But then one day, almost overnight, his customers started putting all kinds of plastic in their bins. The symbols started showing up on the containers, he explains. Smith went out to the piles of plastic and started flipping over the containers. All of them were now stamped with the triangle of arrows, known as the international recycling symbol, with a number in the middle. He knew right away what was happening. All of a sudden, the consumer is looking at what's on their soda bottle, and they're looking at what's on their yogurt tub, and they say, oh, well, they both have a symbol. Oh, well, I guess they both go in, he says. The bins were now full of trash he couldn't sell. He called colleagues at recycling facilities all across the country. They reported having the same problem. Industry documents from this time show that just a couple of years earlier, starting in 1989, oil and plastics executives began a quiet campaign to lobby almost 40 states to mandate that the symbol appear on all plastic, even if there was no way to economically recycle it. Some environmentalists also supported the symbol, thinking it would help separate plastic. Smith said what it did was make all plastic look recyclable. The consumers were confused, Smith says. It totally undermined our credibility, undermined what we knew was the truth in our community, not the truth from a lobbying group out of D.C. But the lobbying group in D.C. knew the truth in Smith's community, too. A report given to top officials at the Society of Plastics Industry in 1993 told them about the problems. Quote, the code is being misused, it says bluntly. Companies are using it as a green marketing tool. The code is creating unrealistic expectations about how much plastic can actually be recycled, it told them. Smith and his colleagues launched a national protest, started a working group, and fought the industry for years to get the symbol removed or changed. They lost. Quote, We don't have the manpower to compete with this, Smith says. We just don't. Even though we were all dedicated, it still was like, can we keep fighting a battle like this on and on and on from this massive industry that clearly has no end in sight of what they're able to do and willing to do to keep their image the image they want? It's pure manipulation of the consumer, he says. In response, industry officials told NPR that the code was only ever meant to help recycling facilities sort plastic and was not intended to create any confusion. Without question, plastic has been critical to the country's success. It's cheap and durable, and it's a chemical marvel. It's also hugely profitable. The oil industry makes more than $400 billion a year making plastic, and as demand for oil for cars and trucks declines, the industry is telling shareholders that future profits will increasingly come from plastic. And if there was a sign of this future, it's a brand new chemical plant that rises from the flat skyline outside Sweeney, Texas. It's so new that it's still shiny, and the inside the facility, the concrete, is free from stains. This plant is Chevron Phillips Chemicals' $6 billion investment in new plastic. Quote, 
We see a very bright future for our products, says Jim Becker, the Vice President of Sustainability for Chevron Phillips, inside a pristine new warehouse next to the plant. These are products the world needs and continues to need, he says. We're very optimistic about future growth. With that growth, though, comes ever more plastic trash. But Becker says Chevron Phillips has a plan. It will recycle 100% of the plastic it makes by 2040. Becker seems earnest. He tells a story about vacationing with his wife and being devastated by the plastic trash they saw. When asked how Chevron Phillips will recycle 100% of the plastic it makes, he doesn't hesitate. Quote, Recycling has to get more efficient, more economic, he says. We've got to do a better job collecting the waste, sorting it. That's going to be a huge effort. Fix recycling is the industry's message, too, says Steve Russell, the industry's recent spokesman. Quote, Fixing recycling is an imperative, and we've got to get it right, he says. I understand there is doubt and cynicism. That's going to exist. But check back in. We're there. Larry Thomas, Lou Freeman, and Ron Leismer, former industry executives, helped oil companies out of the first plastic crisis by getting people to believe something the industry knew then wasn't true, that most plastic could be and would be recycled. Russell says this time will be different. Quote, It didn't get recycled because the system wasn't up to par, he says. We hadn't invested in the ability to sort it, and there hadn't been market signals that companies were willing to buy it, and both of those things exist today. But plastic today is harder to sort than ever. There are more kinds of plastic. It's cheaper to make plastic out of oil than plastic trash, and there is exponentially more of it than 30 years ago. And during those 30 years, oil and plastic companies made billions of dollars in profit as the public consumed ever more quantities of plastic. Russell doesn't dispute that. Quote, And during that time, our members have invested in developing the technologies that have brought us to where we are today, he says. Yeah, where we are today is it's not being done. We are going to be able to make all of our new plastic out of existing municipal solid waste in plastic. Recently, an industry advocacy group funded by the nation's largest oil and plastic companies launched its most expensive effort yet to promote recycling and cleanup of plastic waste. There's even a new ad. Quote, We have the people that can change the world, it says, to soaring music as people pick up plastic trash and as bottles get sorted in a recycling center. Freeman, the former industry official, recently watched the ad. Deja vu all over again, he says, as the ad finishes. This is the same kind of thinking that ran it in the 1990s. I don't think it's kind of advertising is helpful at all. Larry Thomas said the same. I don't think anything has changed, Thomas says. Sounds exactly the same. These days, as Thomas bikes down by the beach, he says he spends a lot of time thinking about the oceans and what will happen to them in 20 or 50 years, long after he's gone. And as he thinks back to those years he spent in conference rooms with top executives from oil and plastic companies, what occurs to him now is something he says maybe he should have been that should have been obvious all along. He says what he saw was an industry that didn't want recycling to work, because if the job is to sell as much oil as you possibly can, 
any amount of recycled plastic is competition. Quote, you know, they were not interested in putting any real money or effort into recycling because they wanted to sell virgin material, Thomas says. Nobody that is producing a virgin product wants something to come along that is going to replace it. Produce more virgin material. That's their business. And they are. Analysts now expect plastic production to triple by 2050. And from from the, uh, the, the plastic end of the oil and gas spectrum to the extraction end, here's a piece published at earther.gizmodo.com written by Molly Taft. Methane has never risen this fast in the atmosphere. There's more methane in the atmosphere than at any other time since record-keeping began, and levels really spiked last year, despite the fact that we were all inside for most of the time. On Wednesday, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency said that global atmospheric methane rose to 1,892.3 parts per billion. Methane shattering records is one of those things that at this point in our anthropogenic timeline seems to happen every year. But what's really troubling about this new record is that methane levels rose by a lot last year, the biggest rise in a single year since record keeping began in the early 1980s. Methane levels shot up 14.7 parts per billion in 2020, compared to 8.5 parts per billion and 10.7 parts per billion in 2018 and 2019, respectively. Even those levels themselves, setting aside 2020's bloated numbers, are worrisome. That 2019 number was more than 2.5 times the pre-industrial average, and 2018 and 2019 were the two biggest yearly increases since 2000, until 2020 smashed through their records like the Kool-Aid man running through a wall. Quote, We don't usually expect methane emissions to jump abruptly in a year, Laurie Brewweiler, scientist at NOAA, told the Financial Times. Brewweiler called the jump, quote, fairly surprising and disturbing. Methane doesn't last as long in the atmosphere as its partner in planet warming crime, carbon dioxide, which, by the way, also shot up during 2020. But while it stays in the atmosphere for less time, it packs a much bigger heating punch. Methane is roughly 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. An estimated 60% of methane released into the atmosphere is directly tied to human activities like flaring from oil and gas or animal agriculture. But humans still probably deserve a lot of the blame for the rest of the 40%. Permafrost thawing, for example, is technically a natural process that releases methane into the atmosphere. But with the Arctic warming at breakneck pace... Human activities had a hand in fast-tracking the permafrost meltdown happening right now. Scientists aren't sure what caused the crazy spike in methane last year, but some of their hypotheses don't sound too good. First, a tiny bit of good news. Some preliminary atmospheric samples, NOAA said, suggest that the spike is from natural sources like ecosystems. 
But scientists say the increase could be because those natural sources of methane, like swamps and bogs, are getting warmer and emitting more as a result. Another idea? Our atmosphere could be losing its ability to break down methane, like an old air conditioner that's on its last legs. Sounds bad. Quote, Although increased fossil fuel emissions may not be fully responsible for the recent growth in methane levels, NOAA research chemist Ed Dougal-Kenkley said in agency's Wednesday's announcement, reducing fossil methane emissions are an important step towards mitigating climate change. While methane may be with us for a shorter amount of time than its longer-lasting cousin carbon dioxide, curbing emissions of both greenhouse gases is vital to lower the temperature in the short term, as well as ensuring the world doesn't slowly cook over the next few centuries. Our world's climatic changes caused by human activity are kind of like a runaway car speeding down a hill, picking up more and more speed. And as this spike in emissions shows, there could be nasty surprises about where it's headed and just how fast it's going to get there. One of the first times I talked to Judy Berry on the phone, and I had never met her, I said, Judy, you know, the earth is not dying. It's being killed. The people who are killing it have names and addresses. What I mean by that is through power structure research, through hunting very carefully, we can find out the names and addresses of the people who really have their foot on our necks, the people who are really causing the damage. And then nonviolently, my vision, my dream is that thousands, thousands, millions of people go to those homes, go to the places where they shop, go to the places where they take their vacations, sit in the doorways, lie in front of the cars, and when they're hauled away to jail, other people take their place. Surround them, put them in jail. Oh yes, I know it's an air-conditioned jail and the food's pretty good, but they're in lager, they're surrounded, like it, like in uh, Montreal, uh, like at Genoa. They're behind the barbed wire, they're behind the concrete. We've got them in prison, we've got to understand that they're afraid of us, all right? Let's make sure that they can't enjoy their ill-gotten gain. There are so many companies out there, so many trade associations doing so much bad work to prop up their own profits that is damaging to people, to the environment, etc., that it's hard to narrow down into a single selection. But for this episode, we are going to look at CVS Health Corporation. This is pieces written by Lee Fang. It's published at theintercept.com. In a year marked by a coronavirus pandemic that has killed millions, CVS Health financed a wave of political advocacy against measures to control health care costs and increase access. The healthcare giant, which owns Aetna Health Insurance and operates thousands of pharmacies and walk-in clinics around the country, provided $5 million to the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, or PAHCF. The seven-figure donation from CVS is the largest known contribution to PAHCF which was formed in 2018 to lobby and advocate against proposals such as Medicare for All, the public option, and similar reforms that have gained growing support in recent years. PAHCF is a 501c4 
and is not required to disclose donor information. Last year, PHCF swamped voters in Democratic primary states such as South Carolina, with ads urging voters to oppose Medicare for all. In states considering the public option, the group hired local lobbyists and aired advertisements designed to discourage state legislators from voting for the plan. And just before the general election, the group again aired ads attacking the public option. Neither CVS Health nor PAHCF responded to a request for comment. Despite CVS Health's donation, the company is not listed as a coalition member of PAHCF on the group's website. In recent weeks, PAHCF appears to be reprising its role. The group has launched ads that have warned lawmakers against supporting President Joe Biden's national public option proposal and funneled resources into states to attack state-based proposals for public insurance plans. Last week, CVS Health Chief Executive Officer Karen S. Lynch co-signed a letter to Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont warning that the drive to enact a public health insurance option would drive health insurance businesses out of the state. The letter, also signed by the chief executives of Anthem, Cigna, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and United Health Group, charged that the effort to lower premiums and expand coverage through a public option, quote, will only further deteriorate the state's fragile economy. The disclosure of the $5 million donation comes as PAHCF has embarked on another round of advertising in the Colorado, Maine, Montana, Connecticut, and the Washington, D.C. markets. The organization also launched an offshoot in Nevada, another state in which legislators are considering a public option proposal. Last year, PAHCF successfully lobbied to defeat a previous attempt to pass a so-called public option insurance plan in Colorado. The Colorado program was designed to provide residents with an alternative health insurance plan with premiums that would cost an average of 20% less than private insurers. The proposal also contained a number of cost-saving measures, including a requirement that drug companies pass rebates directly to consumers rather than third-party health care providers or insurers. The PAHCF ads railed against the proposal, claiming it would introduce, quote, government-controlled health care that would insert politicians into decisions that should be left to patients and doctors. I just want to scream. The industry is inserted firmly into what they're calling decisions that should be left to patients and doctors. I am freaking dying. I have an incurable disease. I have psoriatic arthritis. Now for the second time in the last five years, my insurance company has said They will not cover the medication that controls my symptoms. My psoriasis is out of control. If you remember the the, uh, cartoon Peanuts, and you remember the character Pigpen, I leave a freaking trail of skin cells everywhere I go, like Pigpen in in that cartoon strip. Because my fucking insurance company said they'll no longer cover Remicade 
which is extraordinarily expensive, but I have otherwise reasonably good insurance that allows me to afford it until they say it's not covered anymore. Last time they did this, last time it wasn't Remicade, it was another medication, a different medication. I believe at that time it was Cosentix that was working for me. And they said, oh, sorry, that's too expensive. There's a less expensive uh, medication that we want you to be on to save us some freaking money. That time, I bounced from medication to medication over a year, trying out three different less expensive medications, none of which worked. In addition to my psoriasis being out of control, my arthritis got out of control. And for six months, I was out of work on disability because I couldn't get in my car and drive there. And in a couple of months in that time, I could hardly get out of my bed because the pain was so unbearable. I was on freaking Oxycontin and Oxycodone, and those did not alleviate my pain to the extent that I could function in any kind of normal capacity. So fuck all you all goddamn insurance companies that 100% interject yourself into what this article says, uh, decisions that should be left to patients and doctors. Back to the piece. The group working in concert with the Federation of American Hospitals and Healthcare Leadership Council has also lobbied lawmakers directly. Internal documents from the group previously reported by The Intercept show that PAHCF and its affiliates directly engaged ghostwriters to author opinion columns, briefed Democratic Party officials on the dangers of embracing health reform, and worked to pressure candidates in the presidential primaries. But watchdogs, such as the Center for Health and Democracy, say the group is merely a lobbying front to preserve the profits and market share of private health providers and insurers. Quote, the story of healthcare in America is about profit-driven corporations versus Americans who need care, says Wendell Potter, the president of the Center for Health and Democracy. While the pandemic ravaged the economy and claimed the employer-sponsored health coverage of some 15 million Americans, much of the healthcare industry thrived. CVS Health collected nearly $13.9 billion in operating income last year. HCA Healthcare, the for-profit hospital chain that also funds PAHCF, paid its chief executive Samuel Hazen $30.4 million last year. CVS devotes large sums of money on political influence. Last year, the company spent $10.3 million on federal lobbying efforts. The voluntary disclosure that shows the $5 million donation to PAHCF also revealed other donations to political influence groups that do not reveal donor information. The company donated $1,750,000 to Majority Forward, a group affiliated with Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat New York, that supports Senate Democrats, and $1,750,000 to One Nation, a group affiliated with Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, that supports Senate Republicans. CVS also made donations to a variety of political organizations, including Third Way, 
the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, Center Forward, and the American Action Forum. Quote, Make no mistake, as long as their billions in profits are threatened, the front group for the health insurance industry will spend whatever it takes to keep the status quo exactly the way it is, added Potter. Next up, a piece written by Quentin Fotrell, published at MarketWatch.com. As of last month, the U.S. poverty rate has been on an upward trajectory. Between February and March, the rate of poverty in the U.S. increased by 0.5 percentage points to 11.7%, resulting in the highest level since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, though the change wasn't statistically significant. The second highest rate of 11.6% was recorded in November 2020. These estimates were taken before the rollout of the Biden administration's American Rescue Plan. Since spring of 2020, real-time poverty data in the U.S. has been tracked every month by economist Bruce Meyer from the University of Chicago, Harris School of Public Policy, and James Sullivan of the University of Notre Dame's Department of Economics and the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities. The persistently high rate of poverty runs counter to jobless benefit claims, which fell to 574,000 last week from a revised 586,000 a week earlier, the U.S. Labor Department said Thursday. It is the second consecutive week with a significant fall in claims, now at their lowest level since mid-March 2020, when the pandemic took hold in the U.S., More than 100 million claims for unemployment insurance have been filed over the last year, the Economist wrote, with co-author Ji-Hoon Han of Zhejiang University in China, describing the government's three stimulus packages. Quote, While new UI claims fell sharply from April through July of last year, weekly claims have remained high since then, and more than 1 million claims each week, about five times the pre-pandemic rate, they added. Those who experienced the sharpest rise in poverty included children, white people, women, those with low education, and those in nearly half of U.S. states that have more restrictive unemployment insurance payment policies. Last month marked the first time that poverty has been so acute for children, non-minorities, and women, the report added. Under the American Rescue Plan, Individuals making less than $75,000 a year in adjusted gross income received $1,400. The payments decreased for individuals earning $75,000 and up and phased out completely for those making $80,000 or more and couples making $160,000 or more in adjusted gross income. It was the third such relief package over the last year. Unemployment fell to 6% in March 2021 from a seasonally adjusted 14.8% in April 2020, as poverty rose. Initial jobless claims filed traditionally through the states fell to a seasonally adjusted 576,000 from 769,000 in the prior week, the government said last week, marching the largest decline since August, yet 16.9 million people are still reportedly collecting benefits. Quote, This disconnect between poverty and unemployment is not surprising, given that many government benefits expired. 
unemployment insurance benefits are typically only about half of pre-job loss earnings, and nearly 5 million people have left the labor force since the start of the pandemic, and therefore are not counted as unemployed, the economist added. In the last week of March, 20 million Americans getting by primarily due to the generosity of friends and family were more likely to be suffering from food insecurity, according to a separate analysis by Claire Zippel, a research analyst at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a think tank focused on the impact of budget and tax issues on inequality and poverty. One of many other factors that uh, impact inequality and poverty and inherent racism in our systemic structures is the increase in the use of algorithms and artificial intelligence. This piece is by Whitney Kimball. It's published at gizmodo.com. Tentatively excellent news. The Federal Trade Commission has declared that it is serious about racist algorithms and will hold businesses legally accountable for using them. In a friendly reminder-type announcement today, it said that businesses selling and or using racist algorithms could feel the full force of their legal might. Quote, Fortunately, while the sophisticated technology may be new, the FTC's attention to automated decision-making is not, FTC staff attorney Elisa Jilson wrote in a statement on Tuesday adding that the agency, quote, has decades of experience enforcing laws that racist algorithms violate. They write that selling and or using racially biased algorithms could qualify as unfair or deceptive practices under the FTC Act. They also remind businesses that racial discrimination by algorithm or human could violate the Fair Credit Reporting Act and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. The effects of algorithmic racial bias and automated white favoritism spill out far beyond the types of products Facebook serves us. Racist algorithms have been shown to disproportionately deny black people recommendations for specialized healthcare programs. They have priced out higher interest rates on mortgages for black and Latinx people than whites with the same credit scores. They have drastically exaggerated black defendants' risk of recidivism, which can impact sentencing and bail decisions. They have encouraged police to target locations and arrest records, which perpetuate further disproportionate arrests in black communities. The list goes on. Government use of racist algorithms makes the selling part especially important. The FTC can't try the cops, but it might be able to go after a company that misrepresented its tool as race neutral. Given the endless churn of stories about the racist results of facial recognition, it could seem that the FTC is equipping itself to practically annihilate the technology. In an email to Gizmodo, an FTC spokesperson said that a seller could be guilty of, quote, deceptive practices if it, quote, misleads consumers, whether they are businesses or individuals, about, for example, what an algorithm can do, the data it is built from, or the results it can deliver, the FTC may challenge that as a deceptive practice. That's a big deal. 
Most algorithms that sort through personal data do deliver discriminatory results, and companies tend not to admit it. But this is complicated by the fact that it's often hard to prove the results because companies also tend to avoid letting us look under the hood, forcing investigative journalists and researchers to piece together clues after the damage is done. That caginess would likely stall an FTC complaint against an unfair practice. The commission would have to perform the time-consuming chore of exposing proof that the algorithm itself directly harms consumers. In the spokesperson's example, quote, compromises consumers' ability to get credit, housing, or jobs. In other words, no one knows the extent of racist algorithms' damage, and the FTC urges businesses to hold themselves accountable, or the FC, FTC, quote, will do it for you. Read, the FTC will come for you even if you're a small potatoes Honda dealership. Businesses will still lie, they know, so the announcement also reminds us that the FTC filed a complaint against Facebook alleging, among other things, that the company knowingly deceived users about facial recognition. This resulted in a settlement of $5 billion, which the FTC had celebrated as history-making. But Democrats complained was wildly insufficient to make Facebook feel any pain. On a more hopeful note, the FTC could spread some of the regulatory responsibility around. The spokesperson noted that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau also enforces the Fair Credit Reporting Act and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. The Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice, too, could pursue discrimination cases. Here's hoping that they follow through and drive a hard bargain. People are getting sick and locked up. And there's a good documentary on this topic on Netflix right now. It is called Coded Bias. It looks at artificial intelligence and algorithms and how they are biased because they are created with data sets that are biased. Because guess what? We live in a white supremacist biased society. And therefore, actions that happened previously which are what the data sets are built from had had racist elements to them so if you give if you give the algorithm a racist set of data it's going to provide a racist output and there's examples in this in this uh, documentary once again called coded bias of i believe it was amazon using artificial intelligence to pre-screen um, applications for employment. And it rejected every woman because it was looking for a like executive level, upper level management. And the data set that it was provided were previous upper level managers. And guess what? Those previous decisions were based on race and, and gender and were exclusive and heavily favored white men. So when you give the algorithm a data set that says, here's all the white men that we've hired before, please screen all these new applications and bring, bring the, the best candidates to the top, it's going to push forward white men.
not a big surprise when you look at it. Um, and there's example after example in, in this, uh, in this documentary, highly recommended coded bias on Netflix. You know, the future of, of computer learning is not going to solve our racism and our white supremacy issues because the people building those systems are part of the racist and white supremacist culture and system. Uh, unless there is massive effort to overcome that previous bias, we're not going to get better results from these systems that are becoming ubiquitous. Like this story pointed out, they screen people charged with or convicted of crimes and say, are they likely to commit a crime in the future? And, and the data says yes, based on poor assumptions. Um, this, these, these, these things wreck lives. These things have the capacity and, and not just the capacity. These things are actually perpetuating the white supremacist and racist and, and gender-based uh, structures that already exist. And when they tell you that this is different, this is better, you better be skeptical of it because in many, many cases, it is not. It takes effort to make it so. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more, including all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can hear You Can't Be Neutral and all my other podcasts playing at MovingTrainRadio.com. And now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. Of course, when you, when you approach history that way with a point of view, it's, it's, it can be dangerous to your career. And people always wonder why it is that the textbooks repeat the same stories over and over again, or why history is taught the same way, or why the same set of facts are told over again, or why the same things are omitted over and over again. And the very repetition of those omissions, the very re repetition of those points of view become persuasive in telling you, well, this must be the truth. If seven, eight, ten generations of kids learned that Columbus was nothing but a marvelous adventurer and great navigator, <laughs> a real professional, <laughs> you know. And if everyone, if everybody has been taught the same thing for a hundred years, it must be true. Um, and if you teach it in a different way, if you teach something that's been taught the same way, or if you write something uh, that's been taught a certain way, and you deviate from that, and you start to teach or to write something in a new way, well, that may be dangerous for your career. You may not even consciously think of it that way. You're not consciously selling out. It's just that in a society of, of economic hierarchy, in a society of economic insecurity, in a society where everybody is in some way insecure, uh, middle class, working class, 
Everybody's in a situation where somebody has power over them, power over their jobs, power over their tenure, power over their promotion, power over their salaries. In every such situation, there's always the uh, thought or even the <laughs> unthought but felt need for safety. And safety results in teaching a certain kind of way, writing a certain kind of way, presenting uh, the same set of ideas over and over again. Uh, that's safe. But I, I guess you can put it this way, I never wanted to practice safe history. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I remember.